Hello and welcome to the Scene Magazine podcast. My name's Alex Kleinberg and today I'm joined by rock and roll historian and author Dr. Jennifer Otter Bickerdyke and we're going to be discussing her fabulous biography of Nico, star of La Dolce Vita and the Velvet Underground. So Jennifer, first of all, tell me, how did you discover Nico's music? I discovered Nico's music by seeing the movie The Royal Tenenbaums. Do you know that movie? When they play these days. Yes. Oh, because I have to say, until I got married, I was the most, I always wondered like why relationships never worked out for me. And I realized in retrospect is because the number one thing on my list for any date was must love Morrissey and the Smiths. And I'm like, so the, basically the person had to be as miserable and fucked up as I was. <laughs> so that scene in Royal Tenenbaums where uh, where Margot Tenenbaum gets off the bus and Richie Tenenbaum is there and they have this like weird relationship, all this tension. And, and These Days by Nico is playing. It's just so beautiful and perfect and like dysfunctional. And it just checked every single box for me. So that's how I first, first really kind of got into Nico. And I went and got the Chelsea Girl album. I would be lying if I said that I could listen to a Nico record all the way through. I find it difficult to do um, because it's just even Chelsea Girl, what she hated, I find them records really, really intense and her voice really, really intense. And from a Smith fan saying that. Yeah, she had a pretty impressive career before she joined the Velvet Underground, you know, as an actress and a model. But do you think the Velvet Underground was always a a logical destination for her or did she kind of stumble into it by accident? Nico is a woman of two sides because she says, oh, I always I she says something I'm, I'm paraphrasing. She says at one point, oh, I always get there too late or too early. But she, at the same time, she always has this impeccable timing of finding kind of like, she's like a bloodhound, she like sniffs out the right people. Um, so I don't know if being in the Velvet Underground was always like it was meant to be, but I do think Nico did have an excellent way of figuring out the people that she needed to have around her to help her get to the next step. And what about her relationship with Lou Reed? In terms of her actual relationship with Lou Reed, I think that for a time there definitely was some feelings of like and an enamorment between the two of them for each other. But that quickly turned into uh, resentment from Lou Reed's end because it's really interesting. I think for Nico, Nico really felt like you know, War- Warhol basically created the situation where he's like, okay, Velvet Underground, you can have the factory to practice in and I'll give you equipment and you can use my name, which is like the Kim Kardashian of that time, if you would, you know, you can use my name to splash out and get all the visibility, but da, 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 you have to have this person that you don't know has never really sung. Be- she, she had some singing experience in England with Andrew Lou Goldham, but she never really sung in New York. Um, she has to be the front person and like stand in front of the stage. And for Nico, she literally is thinking, this is my backing band, these people. So there's this massive communication clash from the very beginning. And you start seeing that in all of the newspaper clippings and the write-ups and the advertisements from that time. It's Nico and the Velvet Underground. And I think this really made uh, Lou Reed very jealous and angry. And you can understand why. She leaves the Velvet Underground, her first solo album, we've already mentioned, Chelsea Girl. It's quite a different vibe to, say, her Marble Index and those really dark, otherworldly albums she makes later that still don't sound like anything else. Whereas Chelsea Girl does kind of mm-hmm. fit into that kind of folksy 60s sound, does a Bob Dylan song and, and what have you. So do you see Chelsea Girl as like an anomaly in her catalogue compared to the, the, every, all the albums she makes afterwards? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because Chelsea Girl, she didn't write any of the songs on Chelsea Girl. They're all songs that were donated or given to her by other people. And also with Chelsea Girl, um, there was an artist called Judy Collins at the time. So it was kind of this like folk rock explosion. And I think they were trying to kind of craft Nico into being the, you know, the next Judy Collins, if you know, they're always kind of looking at that. You know? And I think one thing that's really interesting, and this has come up a lot in conversations and in interviews is this idea that I don't think she even knew or thought, Alex, that she could be an artist in her own right. Like that idea that she could write her own songs, that she could play her own instruments. I think that, that or she could even like unleash something inside of her. I think that never really even occurred to her until she hooked up with Jim Morrison. And Jim Morrison was kind of, I think, the first person that was like an equal to Nico. Like he was super, obviously super hot, a sex symbol. People wanted to be with him because they thought he was super hot and a sex symbol. And Nico was super hot and a sex symbol. So it's almost like they kind of like their hotness like canceled each other out. So they almost could vibe on that just artistic level. And he was the first person, I think, that really just unlocked for her. Wow, I can write my own music. So her second album, The Marble Index, is a pretty terrifying album, and it still just doesn't sound like anything else that's ever been made. Can you make it all the way through? No, I, I would listen to a few tracks at a time. Even when I was a really gloomy teenager, um, that, that was a bit too much. Um, but how did she even go about making an album like that? She went, well, John Cale, that was John Cale's first um, time going in the studio as a producer. So John Cale was at the helm of that album, and it clocks in it actually just under 30 minutes so the legend goes that um that that nico and then the other producer whose name is fraser mohawk the two of them were very high on heroin for most of that album and basically so it ends up being really a more collaboration between john kale and nico on that record so that in terms of where that's coming from i'm not saying that that heroin and narcotics are making that sound that you're hearing but there definitely is some of that tension, I think, of addiction and darkness. And again, that kind of what it means to be a woman at that moment in rock and roll, that's definitely coming through in that record. And that's why it's such a dramatic switch from uh, from the record before that. And I and I think, you know, John Cale is really an unsung hero in a lot of ways with Nico. You know, like he does he's he's not enamored with her at all, but he can harness her ideas and make them into fully formed songs. So in terms of where that came from, that's what it is. And one thing that um, it's, I think it's Iggy Pop that says it in the book, this idea that here are these two weirdo like Europeans in America making music. And that's, mm -hmm. I think a fact that cannot be overlooked. You know, there's this great scene um, where Iggy describes when he first meets Nico and John Cale is producing um, an Iggy Pop and the Stooges record and he's like saying how they're like Mr. and Mrs. Munster like John Cale has some crazy uh, black cape with like pink velour lining and Nico is sitting there knitting something and they're all dressed in black and she's like oh good good to like everything that like you know is coming out of the, the studio. So Nico makes some more albums in the early 70s again very dark very uncompromising not exactly the type of music they're going to play on the radio. I mean, did she make any money out of this music? No, she made no money. They're like in all my research that I did, and the book took four years altogether to do, uh, there was never a mention of, it's very hard for us, especially now, to wrap our minds around it, but there was that the B word branding, like that never comes into it. 
I was interviewing Danny Fields and he was just kind of like, where does the money to do anything come from? Like when he means that like food and like everyday existence. And there's a one part where Nico, I found an interview where Nico's talking about her day-to-day existence and she was broke. Like she was, you know, poverty stricken a lot of her career because mm-hmm. I think when she made music, it was because she had to make music in terms of as an artist inside, she had to let it out. So I think it, it definitely was not commercial value. It was definitely an artistic impress, um, expression that she was going for. And I, you know, it, did, it had nothing to do with trying to, to make money whatsoever. I think she, I, one thing that I've asked a lot of people that knew her when I was writing the book was, what was Nico's goal or her plan? And it was like, she never really had a goal or a plan you know which i thought was kind of that's so the opposite of what now like think about it's just completely out of the framework of now like as an artist of any kind you have to have the social media and the brand and the look and the this and the that it's like so alien to the way that any kind of artistic venture is um approached now no, absolutely. it's refreshing refreshing in a lot of ways i think oh yeah and so i mean on a slightly different track now like in terms of her romantic relationships and her sexuality there's a kind of ambiguity there because she definitely had Mm -hmm. flings like with Jim Morrison um but did anyone really leave a lasting impression on her male or female like did did she have much of a sexuality what was her relationship with that side of things Mm, I think that's a really good question I think it's a hard one because um it's I've heard different things from different people in terms of like who was like the real love of Nico's life. And also for me, one of the things that I find really troubling is how I've done, not you at all, by the way, but like I've done some interviews where, especially I've done some TV interviews where like I'll call in and like the banner across the top will be rock and roll's biggest groupie. And it's like a a dude is not going to have that. If it was a guy having sex with all these chicks, it's not going to say that, you know what I mean? It's because she happened to hook up with some of the, most sought after men in rock and roll at that moment that that happens. Um, I think in terms of which way did she go or whatever, I think Nico just in one way, I think she used her sexuality and sex to get ahead. And I think in some ways she used it to try to find comfort and belonging. I think that those are, I mean, I think that's kind of, I mean, I think that's not that abnormal today for people to use it for both those same exact things. I don't think she was that interested in sex though, per se at the towards the later part of her life. Um, I've heard from one person that uh, like, you know, it, it, there was like, oh, it's Alan DeLone, the son of the father of Ari. That's like the true love of her life. I don't think it was. I think she was haunted by how horribly he treated Ari. Um, I think Jim Morrison in a lot of ways was her soulmate. She said that a lot of times in terms of helping her unlock the artistic part of her. But I've also heard from James Young who wrote songs they never played on the radio. He said that it was, um, I'm not gonna think of his name, what is this cat's name? No, Philip Gorel. Philip Gorel. Yeah, Philip Gorel. Okay. James James Young said that 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 Nico said that was her real true love. So I don't really know who was her real true love. I think she was on a quest for that. I think Nico was on a quest for self acceptance her whole life. And I think be, to really be able to love someone else, you need to be able to love yourself. And I don't think Nico ever really loved herself. Okay, so yeah. hashtag California. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So she falls deeper into drug addiction throughout the 70s. She makes some movies, nothing very high profile. And then she kind of disappears. And then eventually in the 80s, she resurfaces in in England. Broke. I mean, did she basically just 
wash up in Manchester out of nowhere. Oh, I love that. That's so dark. That's so dark. You make her so like a beached whale, like she's like, Bleh! <laughs> or, or maybe she went there, like thinking, no, I want to go there and record. No, like, no, no, that's not. No, you're right. That is pretty much what happens. Like she's at the end of, she's at the end of her, of her tether when she gets there. She, um, what happens is somebody spots her like there's this like the kind of the telephone booking scene that word gets up to manchester that nico is doing gigs and so um a guy named alan wise who's a massive nico fan he finds out he books her he brings her up to manchester and he just instantly he's kind of like um the he's in that same kind of scene as Tony Wilson who started factory record and like Hacienda and was really in with all the joy division guys. But for, because Alan is like kind of fat, kind of loud, very Jewish. He doesn't, he, he, Tony Wilson was very slick and very charismatic. And, you know, he was, um, I think it can't, he went to Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember one, but he's very educated and philosophical. Alan is not that. So he doesn't really get the, get the, the kudos that he deserves but he's but Alan was very much in and part of making that uh that 80s Manchester scene happen in a lot of ways and people don't really talk about him very much so he hears that Nico's gigging and he books her to come on up to Manchester and there's something about her that he just instantly connects with and like literally he says from the second he sees her he's just like not falls in love but like falls just he's enamored completely enamored with Nico and he's just like she plays a gig and he is just like completely wowed by the gig and he is just like I can't let her go back down she was living in London in a shared house he's like I can't let her go back down to London like this like she's horribly addicted to heroin she has nothing but like this bag of stuff that she brought with her and he just wanted to take her under his wing and so he did and he starts acting as her agent. He got all of her affairs in order, you know, whether that is her publishing, her rights for Velvet Underground and her other records. He starts getting a tour tour together, tours, plural together for her. He gets a band together for her. So yeah, she did. I think your thing is, did she wash up in Manchester? She did. Like that was like a really, I'm giving you a hard time, but that was a very apt description. Like it was total happenstance that she ended up here. And she, found like a really great community of people that really cared about her in Manchester. And that's kind of what makes it so tragic is that she really was like, but she got on methadone and she had gotten to a much healthier place than she'd been in decades at the, at the end of her time in Manchester. So, um, you know, I think, I think that was the first time in her life she found people that really cared about her. Okay. So just like two more questions. So you're fine. Well, as we get towards like you know the end, she 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 has the accident in Ibiza and and dies. Like, do you think that was just like a phase where she was sort of cleaning up, or do you think that on some level maybe she genuinely wanted to move past drugs, or is it inconceivable to think of Nico moving past drugs had she not had the accident? Nico was never past drugs. To be totally that, and this is a big thing to that I think gets repeated incorrectly. Even I have to admit, I said it incorrectly because when I in the first drafts I was writing, I'm like, oh, she was on methadone. She was just smoking hash and having beer or some vino here, there, and everywhere. And my literary agent, um, who actually has been clean for I think like 11 years, maybe more now, I can't remember. He read it and was like, Jen, because I don't have a, I don't, I've never had an addiction problem. But he said. 
if someone's on methadone, they're not, there's, that still is a drug, a very heavy drug. And if someone's still on methadone and they're smoking weed here and there and they're drinking, they're not 100% clean. You know what I mean? So I don't, I think she got off heroin, which is a massive, huge accomplishment, but she never was 100% like straight edge. You know what I mean? Um, living the super clean life. Like that wasn't Nico's vibe. Like she was very much kind of in the moment sort of person. So she still would, I don't think she was on the road to destruction, but she was, you know, she would have a beer, she would have some wine, she would have some hash, like all those things she still would partake in. So she was not a clean, clean living Nico, which I think that's been written. Like she was totally clean when she died. She wasn't, she was still doing, she was still partaking here and there with bits and pieces of, you know, the, the wacky tobacco and other such things. You know, since her death, like Nico is legendary now. I mean, she is this kind of strange icon that's quite unique. She doesn't really fit into, uh, you know, like say you put David Bowie and Brian Ferry together. Maybe Nico is just strange character. She seems very unique. What do you think her her legacy is? Well, do you know what's interesting is I had one of my friends. She read the book. She read like an early draft. And she's, she kept calling, she'd like send me, she's in California, she lives in San Francisco. So she kept like hitting me up on WhatsApp and being like, this is such a good book, but does it get better? It's like so sad. And then she sent me another one. Oh, it's so fucked up. Oh God, please tell me something good happened. And then like, as she started getting towards the end, she's like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. This has, something good has to happen. And of course, you know, it does have a tragic ending, you could say, but I think the kind of the la I think Nico in a lot of ways has the last laugh because here's someone, especially if you look at how popular culture treats women, here's someone that lived 100% by her own rules. You know, she, uh, she was treated like sh absolute garbage by the press, by the record labels, by popular culture. And she still carried on, you know what I mean? Like it would have been so predictable for her to, I want, people say this to me all the time. They're just like, oh, she, she lived way past when she should have, which I think is ridiculous. But what they mean is it seems like she should have, she should have like over, uh, overdosed or she should have like done a Janis Joplin. Nico made art because she had to make art, not because it was going to make money, not because she wanted to be famous, not because she was trying to rack up followers. It was she was a poet that had to let these ideas out. And to me, that is the most inspirational thing ever. And the fact that she said my only mistake was being born, not being born a man. Hello, like what balls is it to say that like 40 years ago, let alone saying it at all? You know, you could say this exact same thing now. Being a woman is still pretty fucked up. So there's so many, you know, it was an absolute heartbreaker, Alex. I did an event with Shirley Manson from Garbage the other day. And to hear huh. Shirley Manson, who to me is like an absolute hero, say that how much she completely felt when she was reading the Nico book, how she was crying, how she felt like her career totally in a lot of ways paralleled Nico's. That was very difficult to hear because have things really not changed that much? Like that's a wretched thing to hear, but that's why Nico is so important to be that touchstone and to show us that, you know, she, it's been a long time now since she passed away, but you still can make records. You still can live by your own rules and you still can be a strong woman. I think those are all really important lessons and that's her legacy. 
Jennifer's Nico biography, You Are Beautiful and You Are Alone, that's a Nico lyric of course, is available now and it's a great read. It's definitely the definitive account of Nico's life, so be sure to get yourself a copy.